1984, Joe Deaver released the first of the Lone Wolf Gamebooks, introducing readers to the Kai Lords and the world of Magnamut in which you were the hero. Now, 40 years later, those books are coming back, and we're here to talk about them. It's the Journeys Through Magnamun podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Journeys Through Magnamun, the official Lone Wolf podcast, with me, Jonathan Stark. And I'm August Hahn. And today, we are here to talk about Book Three, The Caverns of Calte. August, why are we excited for book three? Between the fact that it takes place in a a radically different environment, uh, it introduces a ton of new monsters and magic, it it touches on the Shianti, it it continues the story of Onatar. So, oh yeah, lots of reasons to be excited about this one. This was a favorite book of mine when, uh, well, really still is, from the entire series, uh, I love book three so much so that when I was when I was in middle school, I remember we had this project where you had to do a cartography cake, <laughs> which is you had to basically bake a sheet cake, but then uh, build you know uh, the landscape of some place on it. And most people chose like, oh, they did their hometown or their neighborhood or Spain, and I did Calte. I, <laughs> <laughs> I brought in this just this. Ice blue, <laughs> so much blue frosting. Right, right. I'm surprised that nobody in your class thought, hey, you did Hoth. Ha, I think someone did. I legitimately think somebody did. That's funny. Um, and the similarities actually, uh, they could be excused for that because, yes, like you said, this is a totally different environment. This is a harsh wasteland, an icy wasteland. But that that really is one of the reasons this this book is so good. I mean, it's so interesting to go from having fought so many just direct combats in prior books to now you're going to dealing with things like frostbite and freezing to death that you right. It it really brings the survival aspect home, and and it makes some of your in the previous two books, less used disciplines, extremely valuable. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and I think there's some that even get limited. Like, uh, is this one book where hunting, you can't use it to find meals? Uh, for most of the book, yes, that's exactly right. Another thing I love about this book, and, and you're going to hear this, listeners, as we go through this episode, but this, this book is so heavy on environmental storytelling. Um, that you see now in a lot of games like Dark Souls or or Super Metroid. If if those of you who don't know what that is, it's really this sense of the world is bigger than your mission. Uh, that's kind of the key to environmental storytelling. So it's not direct narrative. It's kind of, and definitely not exposition. It's more like, hey, you you find a dead body leaning up against a wall, and you you don't know why it's there, who this once was, but the very fact that it's there is telling you something about this world. And there's this hint of a greater lore uh, that you may or may not discover. Right, exactly. This book, it it's really the first one in the series to, to take the rails off. Um, the first two books, because of the nature of the story, really has you driven in a certain direction. And you can make choices, but you've always got an end goal. You've got an end point you're trying to reach. This book, basically, you're thrown on the ice and, and Joe tells you, good luck. 
Try not to slide. <laughs> or, or, or die of frostbite. <laughs> or get impaled by a killer baby in a backpack. Or get poisoned. We could do this for the next 45 minutes. Just We, we really <laughs> could. We really could. There are a number of ways to die in the caverns of Calte. Vonatar the traitor has escaped to the frozen wastes of Kalt, and now rules over the ice barbarians. Your people demand that Vonatar be made to pay for his treachery. So great is the outcry that the king is obliged to promise that the evil traitor will be brought back to Homeguard and made to stand trial for his crimes. For you, Lone Wolf, the king's promise is the start of a quest that will pitch you against a hated foe, deep within the dangerous caverns of Kalt. Now, not to get too carried away with cold puns here, but this book could also be called Revenge is a Dish Best Served Cold. Well, okay. So the the, the basic story behind the, where you begin in this book is that Vonatar the traitor has gotten away. He's escaped. Uh, he he evaded your justice and he's fled north into the land of Calte, of which is a, a frozen Arctic environment uh, peopled by the the barbarians of Kalte, and they are uh, a nomadic, uh, frost adapted folk. They uh, they can live in their environment peacefully amongst themselves, at least, and they rule their environment. You are an absolute outsider coming into this. You, while as a, a Kylord, you have some training in in this kind of in this kind of survival. You've never been anywhere like this. Yeah, you come from a, a land called Summerland. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You, While you do have the basic equipment that you need to survive when you first get here, it, it only takes a few pages for you to realize how inadequate your skills are going to be. And I love, I mean, speaking about the first few pages, I love that this book starts right off with a choice. You know, we've, we, we, the Lone Wolf is our game books at their heart. And so I love that right off the bat, you're given this really big choice. It's not just of, uh, you know, are you going to talk to this person or this person? It's literally what direction, plan your expedition. You have to choose which path you're going to take across this frozen wasteland. Right. And, and your choice determines the path of the book. You literally decide the story you're going to read. Can you tell us, uh, August, the two paths and kind of some of the ups and downs of that choice, like what, what you're looking at? Uh, sure. You, you get two completely different environments depending on which direction you go. Uh, you either get a glacier or a big, wide, snowy plain. And before you reach either of them, you could be attacked. But while you cross the ice sheet, there are these fearsome natural predators, uh, Bachnar for the most part. Uh, and in fact, most of the versions of Caverns of Calte involve a scene with a Bachnar attack. Uh, if you don't choose that, then you end up trying to go over the mountains. And that's the, the Glacier of Vlad. It's packed with natural hazards. You've got fissures, storms, icy winds that can literally blow you off the mountain. And monsters there that have adapted and are so fearsome that they eat Bachnars. Was Calte always like this? Was it always a frozen land full of monsters? 
Aside from the full of monsters part, yes, it's always been a frozen Arctic environment. It's the, the northernmost part of the planet, after all, and the, the upper arch of Kalte goes over the North Pole of Aeon. Okay, so this isn't like a uh, this isn't like a, a place that was cursed with cold, or it used to be a verdant green land, and now it's fallen under the spell of darkness. Uh, right, right. It, it hasn't been affected geographically, like in a like as a place like the Darklands would have been. Now, one place you'd never go in this book is a place that seems like it might be the obvious spot to go, which is the town of of uh, is it Luck. L-J-U-K, for those listening. That's why I, I struggled with that a little bit. It, it's all right. Yeah, it's Luke. Luke. Um, and yes, well, there are, there are a few reasons for that. The simplest reason is that the Sumlending don't know how much control or observation Vonatar has over Luke. Uh, he may even control it through the Ice Barbarians. It's a trading outpost, after all. And even at the best of times, uh, the Sumlending don't trust the Barbarians. And while the trading outpost is necessary, they absolutely do not believe that it's safe. Right, because Vonatar has kind of taken over this land. We know he's taken control of the Irish Barbarians, and it's just kind of this fear of how far has his influence stretched, I guess. Right, exactly. Now, is Luck, uh, Luck, 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 is Luck, Luke, Luke, like Skywalker, is Luke- uh, Almost, yeah, <laughs> if you think Luke like Skywalker, you've pretty much got it. So is uh, is Luke the only settlement of um, of Southern people, you know, people from Magnamund, uh, from the continent, we'll say, is, is Luke the only settlement they have? It's at least the only settlement that- 90% of other people in Magnamund know about. Now, it must be an important uh, trading outpost, though. I mean, there must be something that they get from the Ice Barbarians you can't get in Magnamund. Oh, most certainly. Not only are there luxury goods like carved bone, uh, of which the, the Barbarians of Kalte are masters of doing so. Kind of like Scrimshaw. Yeah, their bone Scrimshaw is second to none. And so as art pieces, they're very valuable. They also, of course, hunt. They have a number of, of products from their environment that they can sell. And they trade those mostly for iron, iron and steel. How long has this trading been going on? Oh, for quite some time. Uh, the trade between Summerland and Kalte really only occurs either by ship infrequently or during those rare times when there's an ice bridge between the two nations because the waters between... Uh, say, the upper islands above, of, above Summerland and Kalte, that freezes over and it, and it allows land travel. Unfortunately, that's also a time when sometimes the barbarians will raid. Raid actually across the, the, the ocean. Uh, yes, they'll, they'll use the fact that there's a solid ice bridge to raid Summerland. It hasn't happened in, in recent history at, at the time of the book, but it has happened enough that it's a known danger. As the beast shrieks a ghastly death cry, the horrible stench of its body fills your nostrils. Even the Kanu dogs wrinkle their noses in disgust and shy away from the evil smell. You watch with distaste as Irian cuts open the beast from throat to belly and peels back the thick white fur. You cannot believe your eyes when he scoops out handfuls of thick oil from inside the skin and smears it all over his face and body. Bagnar oil, he shouts enthusiastically, keeps you dry and warm 
better than fur for keeping out the caltice. He offers you a handful of the vile oil. Well, let's move on to the land itself. Um, of course, there there are from the beginning. There's all these choices you have to make about where you're going, what you're doing. But one thing that's always key and just comes to the forefront in this book so much is that idea of every decision you make is one towards survival. You're constantly trying to battle against time, the elements. Uh, monsters or, or even the barbarians on, on certain um, paths. Uh, but there's also this lovely sense of mystery to this whole book. This gets into that environmental storytelling I'm talking about. And there is one piece in particular I, I've wondered about since I was a, a child. And I, I, I wonder if you know the answer, August. There is a section where you end up uh, camped on, I think it's the side of a glacier, and it's it's one of those windy, blizzardy kind of evenings, um, and you see this glint of torchlight high up on the rock above you, and you kind of have these opportunities to check it out. Is this some? I've always wondered: is this some trick of Vonatar? Is this some other party you never find out about? Do, do we know? Not as stated in the book. Now, the scene that you're talking about is when you're up on the Cloudmaker Mountains. And you, from there, you actually have access to the to the maze within the caverns of Kalti. And that was built by the Shianti. Uh, that was during the Age of Awakening. But for millennium, the caves have been the refuge of Kalti's pariahs. And they have to take refuge somewhere. Often they take refuge in those caves. And, and they can use torches. Uh, they have cook fires. We'll probably touch on the fire spheres later. But odds are... That's what Lone Wolf sees in that moment. Is one of the one of the Kalti pariahs using a torch? I didn't know this. I mean, um, the caverns of Kalti, of course, that's the namesake of the book. You are going to go there. How you enter them and where you enter them really changes based on how you your choices you've made. But I never understood that, uh, or I never quite put together that there were these that 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 it was outcasts from the main tribe that are there. Though I'm starting now that you say that to pick up on some of the clues, like they don't have the uh, the kind of white slave enslaved eyes that that comes when they're mind controlled by Vonatar. They must be kind of outside of his influence, right? And they don't have the they don't have the kinds of things that members of the tribes would have. They don't have the same resources. Um, the few that you see in that particular instance, they don't have the bone armor. They don't have the good weapons. Oh, that's fascinating. That I never put together that there were these different, like there was a part of me, and again, this is the joy of environmental storytelling. I, I knew that the, these guys were different because of some of the things I've mentioned, but I never actually identified that there was this tribe of pariahs or or at least this collection of pariahs. Well, so when you when you go into these caverns, you can find some of these guys and your interactions with them are actually really different from the ones outside. They don't attack on sight. Uh, no, no. And in fact, that personality trait is one of the reasons why some of them get kicked out. They they just they don't have the same. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to label them as universally violent, but they can be very distrusting of outsiders. They often attack on sight. 
And yeah, the pariahs don't don't necessarily have that. August, you're making me feel very guilty because they're, <laughs> <laughs> because they're, I think I know why. I there think is I a know section uh, where you can come across a a couple of these barbarians uh, around a a um, fire or what you think is like a fire, and uh, I'm just gonna say it. I Han soloed them. I, I ran yeah, in and I, I I just cut them down without asking questions. Well, and to an extent that can be that that's understandable, right? I mean, you by this point you've probably been attacked by tribesfolk before. Uh, you you may have been impaled by a baby in a backpack, um, <laughs> and so when you first see them, you're expecting an attack. So attacking preemptively, yes, Han Solo may shoot first. But it's true. You don't actually have to harm them at all. There's a way in the book you could just scare them off. And this section is also how you gain access to um, one of my favorite items maybe in the entire series, the fire sphere. Which is interesting because you never actually need it. It's not a critical item in any way. It's just interesting. It's this small clay stone sphere that's two halves and when you open it one of the halves is on fire inside and you can use it as a cook fire as a light it's a utility item but it's absolutely not mission critical now one of the things they mention in the text this is in the text it it talks about these malare bowls and how they are trapped spirits that that the ancients trapped spirits and basically use them to make like a flame in these bowls. It's like, uh, it's like their version of electricity, um, lights, but right. But the fire sphere, is that the same thing? Is it, is it a spirit that's powering this or is this just magic? Well, they were created by the Shianti, uh, originally and whether or not they actually have trapped spirits that may just be a culties legend. So there's no definitive answer on that. Even for the Malare bowls? The Malare bowls are likely what the the cultists believe them to be. Okay, but they're they're not exactly the same as the fire spheres. So again, this is that great environmental storytelling. I mean, you come across these two barbarians, you, you can't have a conversation with them. You know, they're not going to tell you who they are and their life story, and they're definitely not going to tell you how they found this fire sphere. But you know, th- right. there is a there's a story there that you will never hear. Uh, and we, we never know, but it, but it's there. It's this world that's living beyond the borders of your mission. That's what makes this book feel so real. Oh, absolutely. They, the, all the little touch details, everything in the back, like the fact that the book even tells you what kinds of animals certain predators eat. You never encounter those animals, but the names are there. See, little details. See, and I think that's one of the things that so gripped my imagination, when I was a child reading this book, it reminded me kind of of Moria from from Lord of the Rings, in that you just see this piece of this this area that has this huge, huge history. And so, as a kid, you know, when I read Lord of the Rings, I would just I wanted to devour everything I could about Moria because it was this big mystery. And the Caverns of Calte, similarly, there's so many mysteries to me, even as an adult now when I read the books. And there is one that 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 sticks in my mind that I've I've wanted to ask about. 
And that is you come to this lake or you can uh, come to a lake. Yes. Yep, you can. And you can fall in the lake. <laughs> Which is Yeah, w- one way or another you might end up swimming. And that swim may be cut short by this shadow of this gigantic thing that lives under the lake. And that's got to be one of the more terrifying deaths in my mind, at least in the early series, is is this thing that can eat you in the lake. Oh, and it will. It will. If, if you make the wrong choices, you get it. I can tell you that it's an immense agarashi. Oh, it is uh, an specific- agarashi. It is an agarashi, oh, wow. specifically one of the aquatic style agarashi, uh, similar to the uh, Dulgarg in uh, Lone Wolf 13. Oh, right. So, okay, okay, that makes sense. So we won't see that for a while, but... No, no. It's not a, a Dulgarg, but it's a similar type. Uh, even bigger, as a matter of fact. Well, and occasionally in the podcast, you know, we do give a shout out to Gary Chalk's art and I got to give him a shout out here. I really love his art for this creature. It's just this really, it's just this shadowy fish looking thing. You, he, he does a great job of not showing it just as much as, as Deaver does a great job of not describing it. Yeah, you, you only get the details that you need to be absolutely terrified. You eventually reach a vast ice vault, the center of which is filled with a lake. The frozen surface is very thin, and the water beneath looks dark and deep. You kneel at the edge of the lake, peering into its mysterious depths. Suddenly, you see a large black shape pass close to the surface. There is something alive beneath the ice. And how big are the caverns of Calte? That's the other thing that always I wonders as a child. Is this is this a Moria? Uh, it, oh, they are huge. Uh, specifically, the caverns they run under the entire eastern part of the of the charted continent. Oh wow! Basically, the the map that's included with Lone Wolf with Lone Wolf Three, uh, that entire area has caverns beneath it. And and speaking of the map, do we know what lies? Because the, the pretty much the most northern part on the map. And, and this is where the map kind of cuts off, is your ultimate goal of Ikaya, which is the fortress of the barbarians where Vonatar is, is holed up. Is there beyond that anything, or is it just wasteland going and going? For the most part, it's wasteland. Uh, the environment is inhospitable even to the standards of the, of the Kaltis. That said, there there are a few trading posts for within their own tribe, not anything that others use. And there are a few small settlements, mostly subterranean, but very little would even be on a map if one were made. And not to get too far off the mark, but is this world one in which there are edges or does the world is it a round world like a like a, a an astrological body, a planet? Where if you go far enough north, you'll come to Southern Magnum. No, it's basically a huge disc that's held up by four falls. <laughs> no, of course it's a, it's a it's it's a round it's a round planet. I promise. If you if you go too far north, you come out onto the edge of Joe's yeah, desk. You, you fall out it's of the a... book and land in England. Yeah. <laughs> You can see two men in ragged clothes 
huddled together beside a fire that is burning inside a metal bowl. Over the flames, the skinned carcass of a small animal is roasting on a spit. The men are old and mumble incessantly under their breath as they stare deeply into the flames. So ultimately, unless unless your life and your quest end before this, you get eaten by a giant fish, you will come to the Temple of Achaia or the Fortress of Achaia. Now, tell me a little bit about this. What is the history of Achaia? It's a Shiante fortress? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, the the evil Shiante that, that existed in that area, the ones that enslaved and imprisoned the ice demons, they used the, the ice demons' power to build those massive constructions. And that was all during the end of the Age of Awakening. Uh, Achaia was excavated from a gigantic mountain called Segr. That's a S-E-G-R, almost 11,000 feet tall. When the when the Shanti left Achaia, somewhere around, say, MS-3000, about 3005, 4004, uh, the Citadel was shunned by the newly free Ice Barbarians. They were no longer under the, the fear, awe, and control of the Shanti. So uh, it wasn't until their Brumelmark finally decided to reuse it that they even set foot in Achaia. A couple questions about that. One, it, it, it sheds some a kind of a darker light on the Shiante, because I know they're often celebrated in the lore as sort of, you know, um bringers of light uh, and goodness. Yes. And, and many of them were, but just like humans, the Shianti had variations within themselves, and there were some that turned their magic to spirit work and necromancy. Yeah, and and slavery. Uh, well, that particular group definitely considered humans, Dradaran, the other races of Magnamund, to be considerably beneath them. So there must have been a, a split about this. I guess there were some Shiante that didn't approve of of treating the barbarians like slaves. Uh, yes, uh, the Shianti had their own pariahs, and these were them. Oh, wow. Oh, and, and that kind of ties back to an earlier episode, right? Because it's, it's the tomb of one of these pariahs that is uh, the center of the graveyard of the ancients. Exactly. Interesting. Well, the other question I had about this is, boy, how big were the Brumel Marks, uh, you know, I, I, I was I was going to suggest you use the term snowballs. How big were the Brumel Marks snowballs, <laughs> so to speak, uh, to to be able to take on this this place that must have had an evil repute. I think we can assume that that several uh several barbarians were lost testing the defenses, uh i.e. shoved in to to trigger the traps. It's probably safe to say that a lot died that way. Well, yeah, because even when you as Lone Wolf go to this place, it kind of feels um not entirely explored. There, there's this hidden temple you can find, and there's some dark stuff you can find there. I mean, you can, you can unleash an ice demon. You, you can, and it's a terrible idea. And, and more interestingly, maybe because the ice demon at least makes sense. You know, it's okay. We know yes. this is tied to the history here, but there's the doomstone. Now, this is a relic of evil that's not connected to the Shiante. It's connected to the Dark Lords. What is it doing here? Okay, so at one time, several centuries before Lone Wolf's existence, uh, 
one of the one of the servants of uh, of Dark Lord Zagarna, one of his Zagash, stole a doomstone from his masters and fled to Akaya. Uh, he was uh, he was attempting to free and then enslave the remaining ice demons. After all, it it made the Shianti pariahs there incredibly powerful, and he was going to need them if he was going to be free of the of the Dark Lords and effectively turn himself into a Dark Lord, rise above his station. He wanted to lead the Ice Demons against the Duranese, uh, capture Hammerdahl, set himself up as a ruler. But everything went disastrously wrong. Uh, he, uh, he bit off way more than he could chew. Yeah, the Zagash, which is uh, is spelled with some some X's and A's and G's in there, these they are not the brightest of creatures. Very powerful, but more physically brutal than smart. Animal kind of cunning. Uh, actually, a little more than that. Stockbroker cunning. <laughs> they, uh, well, I, I know a couple of stockbrokers. That's a pretty wide variance. So <laughs> let, let's just say that, that a Zagash would be like a, a smart minion for a mob boss, but still a minion. Do we know what exactly happened to this Zagash? Uh, he was destroyed by the ice demons that he released. Oh, okay. So he did release some. Yes, yes. Which is why not all of the imprisoned ice demons are still in cultic. Oh, interesting. Ah, see, and, and again, this is that thing I'm talking about. The lore of Lone Wolf just spreads throughout the series and all these little connections. I'm telling you, if you're a fan of of Dark Souls or Hollow Knight or any of that that modern storytelling in video games where it's just done through these uh, environmental lores and there's there's lots of lore digging to be had. You're gonna love. You're gonna love Lone Wolf, and you're gonna love Book Three in particular. The passage is short, and you quickly arrive at another stone chamber. Ahead, you can see a flight of stone stairs leading to a darkened archway high above. At the foot of the stairs, still upright and in armor, are the skeletal remains of an ancient tombkeeper. A large black sword rests in the skeleton's bony fingers. All right, so of course, the focus of your mission is you're here to get Vonatar. Can you give me just a, a brief rundown of Vonatar's kind of background? Like, where did this guy come from? Not, I mean, in general, like, how did he rise up through the ranks of the Brotherhood? And how did they not know he was an evil with a name like Vonatar? <laughs> Well, <laughs> the the name, at least at one time, was considered to be quite favorable. Uh, he was a gifted mage, um, and his skills were, while there were some within the Brotherhood who understood him to be ambitious, uh, ambition was not necessarily a bad thing in the Guild. After all, you, you sort of have to be up in your own head to, to master magic and to be a scholar in the first place. When did those ambitions go wrong? Well, uh, unfortunately for, uh, for Vonatar, he believed that he was part of a, of a great prophecy. And, and while I won't go into the details on that per se, his ambitions and talent got him to the rank of senior brother, which is a very trusted rank. It's not too far below the guildmasters themselves. 
He wanted the Brotherhood to secure more power, and at least at first, like with many kinds of evil, it started with good intentions. He wanted to secure power for the sake of Summerland and Magnamund. Remember that Summerland, by its location, is constantly under threat from the Dark Lords. So part of the existence of the guild is to defend Summerland against the forces of Nar, And he believed that that could be done by mastering both left-handed magic, as they practice, and right-handed magic, which unfortunately is the magic of darkness. So left hand is kind of envisioned as assisting the flow of life, whereas right hand is controlling it? In a sense, in a sense. It, the the left-handed and right-handed paths uh, are... They're philosophical in nature. Okay, so it's not like they're like it's not like the left hand is you know Isher or Kai used their these are good gods. They use their left hand, and Nar only uses his right hand. It's not like that. No, no. It while the analogy isn't perfect, it, it is a bit like the light and dark sides of the Force. Got it. So left and right just became a you don't j- literally cast right handed magic with your right. No, hand, no. It, it's a it's a figurative statement. Okay. Okay. But Vonatar, he decides to start practicing this right hand magic, and and he dis- and he discovers that he has quite a talent for it. But it's almost impossible for him to find sources of lore. After all, the, the Brotherhood doesn't practice right handed magic, and right handed magic is branded as being of darkness and evil. So there's not a lot of sources. There aren't a lot of sources for lore, and that's where he gets into trouble. Because in order to learn more about right-handed magic, he starts making bargains and contacting individuals he shouldn't. And, of course, once the forces of darkness realize that there's a brotherhood of that there's a brother of the Crystal Star wanting to learn their magic, he opens himself to be easily corrupted. Okay, and is this also why he is physically deformed by the time we see him in book three? It certainly hasn't helped. Uh, he was he was <laughs> he was never exactly a physical paragon. He didn't need to be. He was a wizard, and he but he wore his slight deformities with pride. What what, what, what was the hunchback? Did he have that before or was that after? Because I've heard different versions of this. Officially, there's no specific statement on that. What can be inferred is that he might have had a, a slight deformity. Uh, a slight hunch, perhaps listed a little bit to that side. But the farther he went down the right-handed path, the more exaggerated his deformities became. Right, because by the time you meet him, he's like the Wicked Witch of Notre Dame. Uh, an, Im- an, an immense hunch, his back is bowed, his face is almost a parody of itself. It, it really is. He almost looks like he is going to cackle at you. And your little dog, too. Yes. And it would almost be amusing if it wasn't for the fact that he can raise necromantic fleets and rain down fire. Well, that that is another thing, I mean, about, about book three, is that Vonatar, it is true. When you see him in the art, and even when you encounter him, he's such a coward um, that you could almost laugh. Except there's other things things that you can learn about him. For instance, you don't have to go here, but you can end up in his laboratory in Cult A, and it's something out of a horror show. I mean, there are body parts hanging around. There are, I mean, 
what is he doing in there? Very specifically, Vonatar is at nature a scholar and and a researcher. So what he's doing in there is just continuing to perfect and improve his magic. And the implication is that if he were left alone, as powerful as he already is, he would just become more so. He truly had a singular gift for magic. Up. Oh. That's the signal that it's time to talk about one of the book's monsters. This is a feature that uh, we're going to do some episodes, just like some other episodes we do in the margins. This episode, we want to focus on a key monster, a really interesting one that comes out of this book. And that monster is the Acroneonor. Do you want to tell us what that is, August? All right. The Acroneonor is an undead guardian, uh, and there were more than one of them. There were actually several that were created by the evil Shianti. Oh, no, that's terrifying. There should not be more of one of these things because they look like giant Cthulhu squid monsters. They do. And they basically are. They're these unfathomably powerful, vicious creatures who protect the temples and lairs in the the caverns of Kalti. And several of them were were tasked specifically to protect the stronghold of Akaya. And what does the name mean? The the name is never specifically translated. It can be assumed that the language is that of the Shianti, and it probably means guardian of death. And you mentioned their guardians and their name might mean guardian, and that might explain there is a item you can find as effigy. Yes, that that's how the controls. Yeah, them. that's how the Shianti controlled them. Uh, the Akranianor were so powerful that even the Shianti required tools. Uh, to keep them in check. Their their basic power was enough to master virtually anything, but for the Akronianor, they needed effigies. And this gets into kind of uh, another little discussion, but one of this is the first monster that you face in the book where it really can make a difference if you have the summer sword from book two, if you played book two. Well, right, because the Akronianor is an undead and the summer sword is more powerful against undead. And and that's this is something, of course, that comes up in the series quite a bit with the fandom, but um, you can – these books were designed so that you could play them as solo adventures or play the ones that you had, you know, that you had access to, which actually was a great thing um, for creating fans of the series because, for instance, myself in, in the United States, it was hard to get these books. And I, I started with book 14. Right. And had no idea what the summer sword was when the text would ask me. I mean, I made up my own stats uh, <laughs> that were actually less powerful than the stats it ended up having when I read book two. But I mean, without that, I probably wouldn't have been able to get into the series in the way I was. But it did lead to this kind of challenge issue that I think we first see pop up here. Because the Akronianor is pretty hard without the Summer Sword. The, the entire path with the effigy was in the book, almost specifically for players who don't have the Summer Sword. Awesome. And, and, and I like that Joe took that and worked it into the lore. He took a gameplay mechanic, something he needed to do for book design. Right. And he ends up working it into the lore about how they were created and how they were controlled. Which is a theme that you see in, in many of the other books. Uh, everything hinges on lore. That, that was one of Joe's primary focuses. 
From the depths of the moat, you hear a ghastly, inhuman gibbering. You brace yourself for combat, but are totally unprepared for the horror that now faces you. From out of the dark slithers a huge, ghoulish, green monster. Its deformed head is a mass of tentacles and suckers that ooze a putrid black slime. At the center of this writhing mass, a hideous yellow eye pulsates. Now, there's a lot of ways, of course, you can you can lose your mission. Um, but this is the only book, I think, in this series that I can think of where you can actually survive but not complete your mission. Uh, yes, there is one other, but it's kind of a rare instance. This is the most notable book for that. And yes, you can you can fail the mission, but you're still alive. And and what like does this create a Marvel Cinematic Universe branching timeline? Like what happens here? It could. Um, it's never been really touched on us, and there's there's never been anything official done with it. But in talking with Joe about this very thing several years ago, uh, he mentioned that if it were to occur, the Dark Lords would win. Oh wow! Because it. It's it's very likely that Lone Wolf doesn't survive to get back to the mainland. Oh, okay. And and Vonatar, left to his own devices, ends up becoming incredibly powerful with what he learns and finds in uh, in Akaya. So while 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 it would be an interesting what if, it would be a really dark one, like most what ifs. There's another kind of what if scenario in this book where Lone Wolf Lone Wolf um dies, but Vonatar finds the Doomstone and it kills him. Uh, yes, yes. If he's not prepared, if he doesn't actually have the the research ahead of time, the, the Doomstone will kill him like it would any other mortal. And I and I guess in that timeline, though, we're still talking Lone Wolf's not around, Dark Lords are going to win. Well, right, because if he doesn't make it back to civilization, if he doesn't continue his training, there there's no one to stop. That kind of gets into spoilers later. But yeah, yeah, the, the Dark Lords and their aspirations, there's no one to stop him. The easy th- way to put it is uh, you play Lone Wolf for 17 more books after this. That's a lot of plots he's got to stop. Exactly. <laughs> a lot that he's not around to stop if he's dead. Okay. So let's say, though, so you do get in the canon ending, the successful ending, you get Vonatar back to the mainland. You take him back to the Brotherhood. And they throw him into the Daziarn Gate. What? What is the Daziarn Gate? Okay. So the Daziarn Gate was discovered by the Brotherhood uh, when they were using their magic to change the foundation stones at the city wall so that they could better resist enemy assault. They discovered an extraordinary energy uh, deep underground. And when they when they researched it, when they when they went to it and explored the area, they discovered a shadow gate. Now, the Shadowgate, at first they thought that this phenomenon was like a, a, a planar corridor, an astral corridor that connected Magnamund to a, an entirely other plane of existence, which they called the astral, pla- the astral plane of, of Desayarn. A courageous magician at the time uh, named Auden volunteered to step through and explore. Uh, he was well-equipped, he was powerful, uh, he had everything at his disposal to explore and come back, but he didn't. He never returned. That's terrifying. It is. And once they realized he wasn't coming back, that's 
when they started using the Dazayarn. Very rarely. It, it was never used frequently, but as a means of exile. This is really an odd choice, I would think. I mean, to throw a powerful magician like Vonatar into a place that you don't really know where it goes. Well, you have to you have to imagine they already know that he's been infused with dark magic. He's been he's been working right-handed rituals. He's been infused by the dark lords as far as they know, and he's already a powerful minion of Nar. What happens if they kill him? If they if they imprison him, he's he's just a possible threat for later. If they kill him, he could come back as undead, he could be freed as a spirit. What choice do they have? That's interesting. I, I never thought about it in those terms. Uh, that that would explain why they protect him so much from from the mob. At first, I thought it was maybe just a brotherhood thing. You know, once once a member of the brotherhood. No, and and there might and there might be some of that, but for the most part, it's just he's a completely unknown quantity for them, and they don't have any safe option. So they choose the only one that will, at least as far as they know, permanently get rid of him. One last question about this book, August. Um, one of the ways we've talked about how if you don't, you know, if you get these endings where you don't catch Vonatar, but you're not necessarily dead, but you're probably dead because you have to trek back across this horrible, horrible wasteland with no supplies. Um, there is the way that you get back across this wasteland in the canon ending is with this teleportation staff. Yes, that, that's the guild staff that Loy Kamar wields. Now, this is, just tell me a little bit about this artifact, because it's kind of the bookender. It's the thing that, that really clinches it all together, the reason you're able to survive. Uh, certainly. Okay, the guild staffs are, are created and gifted to exceptional young magicians in the Brotherhood, and they're created by powerful spells from what the, the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star have developed as almost like a, a whole new level of left-handed magic. Uh, they're, they're spells of incredible power, uh, and each guild staff focuses on a different kind of spell. For Loy Kamar's staff, it allows him to transport himself, anyone he's touching, or even a group that's just near him, to any location anywhere on the surface of Magnum. Does he have to have been there before? I mean, can he just take some guesswork? Uh, the suggestion is, is that the spell is, is more effective if he's been there before. But no, its power is so great that he doesn't even need to have been there. Uh, it's more accurate if he has been, but he can attempt to go virtually anywhere. And this is the secret ending of Vonatar We Never Get, where he accidentally teleports himself into the middle of a volcano. That would be for the, the benefit of the entire planet, yes. <laughs> well, that is the end of this episode. Uh, we hope you will join us for the next one, which is book four, The Chasm of Doom, which introduces probably my favorite of all the groups that uh, Lone Wolf fights in the books, which is a uh, a specific cult. And they just, man, they're like cockroaches. They keep coming back. Uh, yes. Once you've encountered them, you will just keep encountering them. But for today, 
we will say farewell, good luck on your own journeys through Magnamund, and as always, for, for Summerland, Summerland and, and the, the Kai. Kai. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this revisiting of one of fantasy's longest-running series. To get the latest news on Lone Wolf, and to pick up the definitive editions of the books, which include new sections, updated rules, and additional art, visit magnamund.com. The music you're hearing now is from the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star, a musical project by Lone Wolf fans Andy and Mark. They are on a quest to create an original song based on each of the Lone Wolf books. You can learn their story and hear more about the project at brotherhood.rocks. That's brotherhood.rocks. And they really do.